But first, we start with the new mandatory hotel quarantine for air travelers arriving in Canada. That kicks in today. Now, there's lots of problems with the rollout of this program so far. Let's talk about it now. Let's go live to Spain. My guest is Jake Babick. He is a Canadian playing professional basketball in Spain, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Jake, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, Jake, how long have you been over in Spain? So I've been over in Spain since, since September, so it's been about seven months so far. Okay, and I know you, uh, you've had a great college career there. I know you're at Texas A&M University and now playing professionally in Spain. Congratulations to you on that. I know you got, you got COVID over there, right? I did, yes. Yeah, how'd that go? Uh, it was in December. It was not a fun time. I had a, a bad fever for about two or three days, and then symptoms progressively started to get a little bit worse so I went to go get tested and was positive so I ended up doing the two-week quarantine uh had some lingering symptoms for probably about three to four weeks after some difficulty oh. breathing some lung issues and especially with basketball you're constantly working and trying to get back and stay in shape so that was a little bit of an adjustment but thankfully now I'm 100 percent Okay, I'm glad to hear that because I know that those uh, symptoms can linger for a, for a long time. So I'm glad you're over it now. What's it been like over there in Spain? Have they had a lot of a, a lot of COVID over there? Yeah, there's been a, a lot in the general population. There's been um, an increase in numbers over the last little bit. Uh, basically, they sectioned it off by provinces, so they're basically trying to not allow you to travel within uh, from province to province. And so in our area, it's been it's been pretty normal. Uh, everyone's wearing masks at all times. So even outside, just walking your dog or uh, not even within six feet of someone, everybody's wearing their mask. And uh, obviously inside, everything has been open, which has been obviously different than back home for me. But uh, it's nice to have some sort of normalcy. But again, the biggest thing is everyone is wearing a mask at all right. times. And you guys are still allowed to play basketball? Yes. So the way it works is every week we get tested, everyone on the team, the staff, all the trainers. And then assuming both teams are completely negative, then we go through with the game on the weekend. Okay. Speaking of Jake Babic, he's a professional basketball player. He's from Canada. He's playing in Spain. Okay, Jake, I know you're, you're looking ahead to when you, you might be returning to Canada. And uh, what are your concerns here? Because I know we've got this new uh, hotel, mandatory hotel quarantine kicking in today. Would that apply to you? Uh, that's my biggest concern and area of question that I'm looking into right now. So I'm supposed to be flying home in May. However, with the new uh, restrictions that Trudeau put in place, I'm not sure if my job or my line of work is considered essential. Yeah. So basically, I'm going to have to try and figure that process out because I'm all for quarantining for two weeks and being away from everyone. And obviously, someone uh, being someone that's had COVID, I understand the seriousness of this. Yeah. However, this is my livelihood as well, being out of the country. I'm here for work. I'm not here for leisure or vacation or doing things I'm not supposed to be doing. Right. And so I do think it's a little unfair being someone that's here as a job and been here for months that I would have to pay out of pocket, especially uh, to quarantine in a hotel when I have a perfectly good home to do so. Yeah, okay, because I know that there are some exemptions for essential workers, but I don't know how it would apply to a professional basketball player. That's an interesting question. And so you're looking for some clarity on that, right? Definitely. So I've yeah. been emailing whoever I can within the Ontario government, the federal government, just trying to see uh, who can reach out back to me. Because I know a lot of my friends and peers are in the same situations, guys who have been in Europe now and a bunch of different countries. So 
we've been even talking about potentially flying into Buffalo and crossing the border by land because that's also a uh, an alternative to not having to spend this these few days at a hotel quarantining. So yeah, these right. are all just the different options we're looking into right now. Yeah, Buffalo, New York, and upstate New York, close to the close to the border. So you, what? You maybe just fly into Buffalo and then drive across the border back into Canada. Yeah, that seems yeah. like that would be the most appropriate thing to do. And I'm not too far from Niagara Falls, so it would be an easy easy way for someone to come pick me up as soon as I cross the border, and then obviously uh, avoiding that. Uh, up to two thousand dollar hotel stay for yeah for that yeah would that um your contract with your team over there would they pick up the cost for that for that quarantine hotel when you go back to canada no unfortunately that's what a lot of uh my friends and i've been looking into also but when we signed our contracts back in 2020 in september none of this stuff was obviously uh covered and so yeah. they're essentially liable for us until our last game is finished. So for me, that game will be May 1st. And then anything after that, because I'm on a one-year contract, they're not responsible for anything afterwards. You're making a lot of money over there? I'm doing okay for myself. It's, it's a good <laughs> starting place for me. I'm happy where I'm, where I'm at. And hopefully in the next few years, I'll continue to move up in some leagues and be making some more money for sure. Well, yeah, you're making more. When you, when you get to the NBA, I hope for you. Let me play this here for you. Uh, this is Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets. She was on with Simi Sarah here early this morning. And here she is talking about the cost of these this mandatory hotel quarantine. Here's Claire. The cheapest for a single person was staying at the Fairmont Vancouver Airport, the one that's right attached to the airport. Right. It's going to set people back about $1,635, and that will include the food, the room, the security, the transportation, and the uh, infection prevention and control measures for two people sharing. Now, if you and I were traveling, Semi, and we were in a bubble while we were away, we still could not stay in a hotel together. We would have to get separate rooms. So if you have separate uh, living accommodation here in Canada, you need two rooms. But for two people who are, say, a married couple, it's right. twenty three fifty six, and the Fairmont is still the cheapest. For a family of four, I found that the Weston Wall Centre Vancouver Airport was the cheapest. Family of four means kids 12 and under, just shy of four grand, thirty nine fifty five. Okay, so this can cost a few bucks to do this mandatory quarantine. That's why my guest, Jake Babick, is thinking about maybe f driving, flying to the United States instead and, and drive across the border. Does it make any sense to you, Jake, that if you fly to Canada, you've got a mandatory hotel quarantine, but if you drive across the border, you don't? No, that's another big question that's leaving a lot of us baffled. You know, I yeah. do understand that they're they're wanting to to get these leisure travelers and people who are going for a vacation to straighten them up a little bit. But if you're going to have that standard, then I think it should be applied to all situations. So this loophole is kind of something I think they need to figure out. But if, if that's the case, then I'm definitely going to take advantage of it. Okay. I know that you're not scheduled to return to Canada for, for several more weeks here. Now for people who are trying to get back this week though, uh, I'm hearing lots of horror stories and people just can't get through on the phone line. You can't book these hotels online. you got to phone the government. And a lot of people online for hours and hours and hours, they can't get through. Have you heard any similar stories like that? Uh, nothing similar to that extent. I know my one of my best friends, he's a professional tennis player, just flew back from Miami yesterday to Toronto. And he said after he got his bags, he had to wait about two to three hours in the airport to go through all the COVID protocols and get home. And this was obviously the day before everything was enacted. 
Jake, thanks for jumping on here. Good luck with your uh, basketball career, and thanks for taking the time. Appreciate it, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. We're going to talk about schools here in this half hour of the show. Lots of concerns about COVID in schools. We've got reports about those highly contagious COVID variants showing up in schools in Surrey. Very worrisome. We're going to give you an update on that a little later on in this half hour as well. We'll talk about the Vancouver School District, and we'll talk about a story that we followed on the show, and that is our kids in the Vancouver School District receiving uh, the required instruction time uh, that they're guaranteed to receive under the School Act. This is a hot issue in Vancouver. There's a key meeting of the school board on it tonight. That is coming up a little later in this hour. But right now, let's talk about that school in Abbotsford where teachers worried about COVID-19 were opening the windows uh, to get some circulation in the classrooms. And then we hear that the school district decided that was not safe and bolted the windows shut. you got to be kidding me. Let's talk to Jennifer Brooks about that now. She is the president of the Abbotsford Teachers Union, and I'm very pleased to welcome her. Jennifer, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you for having me. Okay, Jennifer, I'm taking a look at the Center for Disease Control website right now, and it's talking about ways to keep safe when you're indoors from COVID, and it's got a lot of the stuff we're all familiar with now. Wash your hands at regular intervals, clean, disinfect surfaces like doorknobs and tables. And then it says, increase ventilation by opening windows. Which, which makes a lot of sense. Now, I understand some of the teachers at this school and at the Godson Elementary School in Abbotsford have been doing that, right? Correct. That's exactly okay, okay. what's I'll, been going on. Tell me what happened here with the, the decision to bolt the windows shut. I, I find this extraordinary. Uh, yeah, well, I guess we have to start with uh, December when we learned, the staff learned that not the, the entire school didn't have HVAC. There is HVAC in the school, but not the entire school. What is it's, that? HVAC is the mechanical ventilation system, um, but the old part of the school, the original part of the school, um, does not have uh, any kind of mechanical ventilation system. So um, those original rooms, the original wings of the school, uh, didn't have that any way of, of cleaning the air, you know, purifying or, or allowing for that ventilation to occur. Uh, so teachers began to leave their windows open um, and use that natural intake of fresh air on a regular basis to uh, provide for that ventilation into their classrooms. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, in January, of course, the temperature started to, we had a, a, that cold snap. We had a couple of weeks where it was quite cold. Yeah. And, uh, and so, of course, with the windows open, um, you know, it, what happens, the heat is triggered and the heat was coming on. Oh. And I'm sure that put some additional, uh, what was communicated to the staff was that it was putting additional strain on the heating system and the boiler. And, um, and so they were um, uh, suggested that they not open their windows. Um, but of course, we're still in a pandemic. We're yeah. still in the same situation. So, um, so the windows, you know, it kind of was a conversation one day, and then the next day was a professional development day. So the students were at home, and the teachers were in the building doing um, their, you know, professional development. And right. um, there was a work crew that came in, and uh, some of the windows were bolted completely shut. They don't open at all anymore. And the windows that they have remain allowed to remain open, um, had, they bolted wooden blocks into the frames of the windows to limit the amount of uh, the actual amount you could open it. So it's just a, a few inches, um, and that is all that, that they are now able to open those windows. Good grief. Okay, and what was the reaction of the teachers when they saw that? 
Oh, they were upset. They were, they I mean, the level of anxiety uh, just skyrocketed. Um, they know they don't have an HVAC system in that part of the wing of the school. And so they were using the, the natural ventilation from the windows to yeah. supplement and, and to help with that. Because uh, at the end of the day, we all just want to make sure our, our, we don't have, you know, we're trying to stop the spread of COVID, right. keep our exposures down. And, and so the uh, ventilation was a, a huge concern. And it was an instant stress. Speaking to Jennifer Brooks, she's the president of the Abbotsford Teachers Union. So did the union put in an official complaint about the windows being, being bolted shut? Uh, we phoned the, dis- the, the district the day it happened and, yeah. um, and, and, and expressed our concern and, and also informed them of the level of anxiety that, that this is causing and, and really the question of what, what do we do now? What, what did they say to you? Uh, they were going to work on it, and um, they they did bring in some air purifiers. Um, they have, um, but they're very they're very small little things, um, and more designed, from what I understand, for for a home or a bedroom uh, where you want to purify some air. Um, there's this one little it's like little air purifier now brought in, um, but it's, it's not designed for a classroom. It's not designed for, uh, it's not an industrial strength air purifier. Um, I think there needs to be a more concrete solution here or something right. to address, um, you know, address the issues because what? we've had exposures now. Okay, so there has been some COVID in that school, is that right? Yes. Yeah, um, within a couple of weeks of the windows, we have we did have some uh, exposure notices go out. We uh, currently have a class that uh, resides in that wing normally, uh, home on self isolation, and a oh, teacher wow. that teaches in that wing is is currently at home now with COVID nineteen. Oh dear! So so a teacher got COVID after they after they bolted the windows closed. Yes, she did. Oh man! Wow. What what was the official explanation from the school district for for doing this? I mean. Did they say it was because there's too much stress on the the heating system? Is that the official reason? Well, there was a couple of reasons uh, that were given to staff. Um, one of them was the the heating issue and making sure the school is warm enough and and putting that additional strain on the boiler boiler. Um, but there was also a uh, uh, issue brought up about the actual health and safety of the windows. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I miss I suppose that's logical. It's an older school. Um, it, it just seemed like odd timing for us. Um, and it still doesn't. At the end of the day, the ventilation in the middle of a pandemic is key. It, this is something that's really important. We need to keep our teachers safe. We need the students to yeah. feel safe. And, and, and limiting the ventilation at this time is, is problematic. It needs to be addressed urgently. Well, yeah, and excuse me for a la- lot. I didn't mean to laugh there, but I just find it, I don't know, sometimes you gotta, you gotta laugh or you cry because this is not a, this is obviously a serious situation. And I just find it bizarre, like totally bizarre, that they would bolt the window shut in this school. I just find that, and then say it's because of a safe. It's for the safety of the of. Did you say it's a safety about the windows? That that's what they've said. It's window safety. Oh, window safety. Oh, yes. Okay. Is this on the like a first floor or second floor? Like, they was are there any first floor windows? Okay. So there's yeah. no concern about a kid falling out the window or anything. No. 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 Okay. What about um? What about if, God forbid, if there was a fire or something, don't you need uh, an egress out the window? 
It, it was one of my first questions to the district, yeah. but they assured me the um, windows were not designated as a fire escape. I Most see. of those rooms have two separate entrance, like two doors to enter and exit, and that was the explanation that I got. So they weren't deemed, the information that I was given was that they were not considered a fire exit. Okay, we've heard some reports now about the, the more can- contagious versions of the virus, uh, the variant COVID strains showing up in some schools in Surrey. Uh, not that far from Abbotsford, I guess. What, does that concern you? It does concern me. It yeah. concerns all of us. It concerns um, the teachers in the building. Um, and, and like I say, I think that's why we need to address this urgently. Um, it's not going away tomorrow. We're, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And ventilation is, is a key part to keeping those COVID numbers down. Okay, so the windows are still bolted shut today? They are still today, to my knowledge. All right. Are are you asking for the bolts to be removed still? Well, I think that would be a a, a good start, or at least the windows that were deemed safe enough to maintain open, why don't we unblock them so that they're actually able to be opened right away? Um, I I can't speak really to the health and safety of windows, but um, maybe we can uh, do something. Uh, There's got to be a solution here. Yeah, I agree with you. Jennifer, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about instruction time in high school in Van- the Vancouver School District. Uh, the district had reduced in-class instruction to uh, achieve some more social distancing during COVID. Kids were supposed to be uh, getting some remote learning at home. But a lot of parents speaking up saying their kids are not getting the required instruction time that they're supposed to get under the school act. Now, this is a an issue we've been following on this show. And on an earlier show, I spoke to Rob Schindel, who is the assistant superintendent in the Vancouver School Board. And I, I just asked him straight up, are kids getting 25 and a half hours a week of instruction time in Vancouver? Here's what he told me. In terms of instructional time uh, in Vancouver, um, we have three parts uh, to instructional time. They include remote learning, in-person learning, and independent learning. So if we look at uh, the uh, number of hours uh, within those uh, three pathways of instructional time, uh, we do meet uh, the minimum 952 hours of instructional time per year. Okay, the key phrase there is independent learning, which is basically homework, and they were counting that as instruction time. This is coming to a head tonight at the Vancouver School Board. There's a key meeting uh, coming up this evening. Let's talk to one of the concerned parents on this case, Nathan Hume. He's a concerned parent. He's got a a grade 8 student at home, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Nathan, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for continuing to raise this uh, very important story. Yeah, for sure. Can you briefly describe to the listeners what your concerns are here with what's been happening? Sure, I'd be happy to. Since September, high school students in Vancouver have been getting less than half the instruction that students in the surrounding Lower Mainland districts have been receiving. Even though they're all subject to the same public health requirements, students in Vancouver get 8.75 hours of instruction a week. They don't get reliable remote instruction that is false as Rob Schindel's uh, quote just showed, the VSB is relying on unsupervised homework to make up the difference between actual instruction and the requirements of the school act. 
Yeah, I think most parents would say it's ridiculous to count homework as instruction time like the district has been doing here. This is something that parents like yourself have been raising concerns about, and you're getting action. What did the uh, the, the province, right, did the province tell the, the school district here to get their act together? Is that what happened? Yeah, so since we last spoke, I think a couple of things have happened. Uh, about five weeks ago, Minister Whiteside finally spoke up and said the VSB has to comply with the law and provide more instruction. Uh, and the VSB essentially called her bluff. They added two hours a week for grade eight students and nothing for anyone else. So you've still got the situation where a grade nine student on the east side of Burnaby gets full-time in-person instruction, 25 plus hours a week. And a grade nine student on the west side of Boundary Road gets 8.75 hours. So in the meantime, uh, the minister has conducted a review, found that the VSB is an extreme outlier in the province. And as of, I believe, February 12th, gave the VSB until this Friday, February 26th, to deliver a plan to increase instruction for this year. She's told them to do it as soon as possible, and that means now. It doesn't mean next September. Right, and is there, until, there's, a, there's a meeting of the school board tonight, correct? That's correct. The VSB is meeting tonight. The meeting is accessible to the public, streamed on YouTube. You can find the link on their website. And we understand that... The, they will be discussing the ministry's letter and potentially deciding on their response to it. So parents can tune in, can watch. They can even submit questions through an online form, and they need to make sure to copy their MLAs on those questions because it's possible the VSB won't be able to get all to all, to all the questions that are asked. Yeah, what is your, your key concern here? Do you, are you afraid that kids, high school kids in Vancouver could start falling behind, especially if they're if they're close to graduation and hoping to go on to college or university? Well, there's no question that they are falling behind, yeah. Mike. They have had to cut significant elements from the curriculum. My daughter, for example, was not taught writing in English 8 and was not taught physics in Science 8. So elements of the curriculum are being lost, and it should be a major concern for students in grades 11 and 12 and the parents of those students that their children will have a harder time getting into university and thriving at university. They're not being prepared. But I do want to make clear that is a big concern, but we're also very concerned about the mental health of students who have not been in school full-time for a year. It's a year now. Yeah. So kids are alone. They're isolated. They need to be with their friends. They need to be with their teachers. And, it's about time. We're very glad the minister has finally turned on the heat and we're going to find out who's in charge here. Is it Superintendent Hoffman or is it Minister Whiteside? Okay, we're hearing reports today about some of the variant strains of COVID showing up in schools in Surrey and that's a great concern given that that variety of COVID is, is, is more contagious. Do you have... Do you have concerns on that front? Like, you know, you're arguing that kids should be in school more often in Vancouver, but we got COVID circulating too. Mm-hmm. He's got a minute to be here. Clear, I, I'm arguing that kids should get the instruction that they're entitled to by law. Right, And that sure. kids in Vancouver should get the same instruction as every other student in the province, that they should be treated the same. Yeah. As far as public health goes, Mike, I think we should leave the public health questions to the public health authorities. And yeah. I am not a public health authority. What I can tell you is that senior representatives of Vancouver Coastal Health and the BC CDC have directly told senior representatives of the VSB that it is safe 
to provide more instruction to students. And the VSB has had all year to figure this out, whether it's through increased in-person or increased remote instruction. They've chosen to do nothing. They could have done a much better job on remote, and they chose to do nothing. So we're at a point now where the minister has told them to shape up, or she's going to have to take more direct action. Okay, we're following it closely. Thanks for coming on again today. Thanks a lot. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the single-use plastics ban that is looming in Canada here now. The Canadian government uh, last fall announced a ban of six different single-use plastic items set to be phased out across the country by next year. The list includes plastic shopping bags, straws, stir sticks, plastic cutlery, six-pack rings, and food containers made from hard-to-recycle plastics. Some people are pushing for an even wider ban on single-use plastic items. Meanwhile, single-use plastic bans expanding at the municipal level as well. We see more and more municipalities in British Columbia, notably Victoria, Richmond, Saanich, uh, bringing in single-use plastic bans, notably shopping bags in those communities. Let's discuss now with my guest. We've got both sides of it for you. David Clement is the North American Affairs Manager for the Consumer Choice Center. I'm very pleased to welcome him. David, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here. Also, Keith Brooks is on the line. He's the Programs Director at Environmental Defense. Keith, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Keith, let me go to you first. Give me your take on this uh, single-use plastics ban. You support it, right? We absolutely support it. Uh, we know that Canada's got a, uh, a plastic pollutions problem. I mean, it's a global problem, in fact. Uh, but Canada is quite a big contributor to it. Um, I think that, you know, Canadians now have all seen these pictures of whales, you know, with their bellies bloated, you know, dead full of plastic. There's apparently camels now dying because uh, they're ingesting plastic. We've everywhere scientists look, everywhere from the high Arctic to the deep ocean, uh, we're finding plastic, and we're finding it in us, too. Every time they test humans, they find that actually we're ingesting plastic, too. Uh, Canada's a major contributor. We're failing on recycling. Uh, we're only recycling 9% of the plastic that we use here. We've got to reduce the amount of plastic that we use. We've got to reduce the amount of getting in the environment and bans have to be part of that solution. Okay, let me go to David Clement. David, you, you're opposed to the ban, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm opposed to the ban really for four reasons. The first is that the alternatives um, that, that will be forced upon businesses and consumers often have a higher net negative environmental impact. The ban ignores the fact that all plastics can either be recycled, repurposed, or converted through chemical depolymerization so long as they're actually reclaimed. That's something that the government should do uh, a significantly better job of doing. The ban also ignores new, almost entirely biodegradable BHA products that are coming to market. You see major U.S. US brands and companies switching to these products because they're uh, almost entirely compostable. And then lastly, it has huge business and consumer costs. I mean, everybody knows the the impact the pandemic has had on the food service industry. This ban forces businesses to switch to alternatives that are often more expensive. Those costs get passed down on on to consumers. And so it does, does feel like they're kicking them when they're down. Okay, David, let me ask you this. It, it sometimes seems a little, I don't know, counterintuitive to say that banning plastics would be bad for the environment. So let's take like mm-hmm. plas- plastic bags, for example. Aren't paper bags better for the environment than plastic bags? They are not. 
the Environment Ministry in Denmark did a life cycle assessment of plastic bags versus all of the alternatives. A paper bag has to be reused 43 times in order to be as environmentally conscious as a single-use plastic bag. Okay. And a cotton alternative has to be used over 7,000 times. And so okay. we, know, we know that consumers can't use those products enough to make them worth it. Keith Brooks, are you buying that? I, I don't buy it, no, actually. Um, uh, and most environmental organizations that focus on environmental issues uh, also don't buy it. I, I think that uh, these, these life cycle assessments are oftentimes quite problematic. Uh, we don't know what gets counted and what doesn't get counted. It's very hard to be certain that we're comparing apples with apples and not apples with oranges. And one of the things that's almost always excluded from these life cycle assessments is the, the end of life of the product, right? We don't have a problem with paper bags polluting the oceans, getting into fish, into seabirds, that, you know, we're ingesting this stuff. Like, it, that, it's just not, that's not happening with paper. And that's one of the huge impacts is this stuff is getting into the environment. It's not breaking down. It's building up. And, and, and we know the problems there. We can all see it. It's quite visible. Okay, David, what do you say to that? I mean, the life cycle assessments show you exactly what is included uh, in their research, and it's pretty comprehensive. I think that people who question when the Environment Ministry of Denmark comes to this conclusion just don't like the fact that there is evidence to suggest that this may be worse for the environment. I mean, it includes everything from climate change to ozone depletion to human toxicity, uh, terrestrial acidification, marine uh, issues, ecosystem toxicity. It's all in there in terms of how they evaluate these issues. Now, I do agree with my colleague here that the issue is the plastic ending up in the environment. I think that's really where we should be having this conversation is how do we actually go through the process of ensuring that they don't end up in landfills and in the environment? And I think that there are a variety of innovative solutions. I mean, just next door in Alberta, they've managed to more or less solve the issue of plastic grain feed bags um, with almost almost one processing plant. And so there are what, what are they doing, recycling them? Yeah, so they use yeah. through chemical depolymerization, they take these bags, they collect them, uh, they process tens and tens of thousands of bags, turn them into resin pellets. Those become other plastic products, whether they're bumpers for your car or Barbie dolls. And so okay. That, okay. Pre that prevents it from going into the environment, it keeps it in the economy, which is important, and it helps solve the problem of plastic waste, waste in the ocean. Okay, Keith Brooks, what do you say to that? Why can't we just recycle this stuff? Well, we can recycle some plastics, um, but we're, not all plastics are made to be recycled. Right now, when a company produces a new plastic packaging product, which is 40% of the plastics that we use are single-use plastics, they're plastics packaging, they're, they're meant to be used once. And there's no requirement that those products that, be manu that they be manufactured to be recyclable, and there's no requirement that even if they are recyclable, that actually somebody makes sure that they do get recycled. Uh, we're failing on recycling. We were, as I said, 9% of the plastics we use in Canada get recycled. That's it, yeah. uh, which is abysmal. And the, the problem, the reason why we're failing on this is, is quite complex. We need to do better on recycling, but recycling alone is not the solution. It's, it's, uh, in fact, there's been evidence now coming out about how uh, certain members of the plastic uh, industry and others kind of conjured up the idea of recycling because they knew that plastics were causing an environmental problem. They knew that consumers were starting to have problems with plastic, and they said, well, we can just make this problem go away. We can just pretend the plastics can be recycled endlessly used over and over and over again. But they can't be. And we have a global recycling issue, right? China used to take uh, 
something like 50 or 60 percent of the world's plastics. When they shut the door in 2018, all of this plastic that was all over the world started backing up. We found Canadian plastic going to Malaysia, to the Philippines. You may recall shipping containers being shipped back to the port of Vancouver because yeah. they demanded. They didn't, we don't want this plastic. And the reality is there's nowhere for the plastic to okay. go. David, David, what, what do you yeah, say to so that? My colleague here is, is, is missing the other two important parts of the equation when it comes to plastic waste. There's recycling. There's repurposing, which is things like shredding plastic and turning it into things like high-strength graphene and building supplies that compete with cement and concrete. And then there's converting, which is chemical depolymerization. Every single item of plastic, whether it's single, the single-use ones he, he mentioned or um, heavier plastics, can fit into one of those three buckets, every single item. And so we can talk about, well, we don't recycle enough. Well, that's true. We should recycle more, but we should also repurpose more, and we should also convert more. And that really solves the full circle of the, the varieties of plastic okay. waste that we're dealing with. And I think okay. that if we do that, we can actually come to some conclusion that we would both agree on, which is okay. getting rid of plastic in the environment. Hey, Keith, let me ask you this real quickly, and then we're going to take a break and take some phone calls here. But, you know, I've heard sure. people say that, okay, banning these single-use plastics, like banning plastic straws or plastic cutlery is, is just more like a token effort, and it's just like a tiny fraction of, of all the plastics out there, and is it really going to make that much of a difference like do you have any idea of how much of this how much of this plastic waste is is currently being generated like around the world or in canada of how much of the single-use plastic yeah yeah like how oh, big it's, is it? it's tons and tons and tons i mean there's a uh, um um i'm gonna pull up the number right now but i mean it is there's so many eight eight thousand tons of plastic dumped in in landfills burning in incinerators in the environment every day uh oh. and it's more than that now because of the pandemic, some use of plastic has gone up, uh, though I would say that's not justified. But, I mean, we, you, you can look, uh, the amount of plastic being produced in, in the world is this exponential growth curve, right? It started in the, in the 1950s, a little bit of plastic. And you just, if you look at this, this, uh, this, the amount of production, it's just gone up and up and up and up. And the plastic producer companies, including the petrochemical companies, the oil and gas companies, that produce the feedstock that goes into plastics, that's their business model. Produce more yeah. and more and more plastic all the time. Okay. Uh, if they could recycle all that plastic, then they wouldn't need to produce more. It would just become, it would go round and round in, in a circular economy, but plastics aren't really fit for that economy. And also, that's not the business plan of the plastics producers. Okay. Their plan is to build more and more and more and more and more. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the single-use plastic ban looming in Canada. My guest, David Clement from the Consumer Choice Center. He's opposed to the plastic ban. Keith Brooks, Environmental Defense, he supports the ban. Your calls to them. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Steve in Aldergrove. Hey, Steve. Hey. Hi, go Hi, ahead. Well, both guys have made good arguments, but what happens when, what are we going to have to like, we went to a restaurant this weekend, and when we took stuff to go, it was in um, styrofoam. So when that now comes into paper, it'll have to be paper. We're going to have to cut down more trees to package all our stuff. Okay, Keith, what, Keith what do you say to that? It's Keith. Um, yeah, probably paper packaging is, is, is better in that case. I mean, paper packaging uh, can biodegrade in, in entirely, right? If paper is from yeah. trees, they are a natural product. We need to have sustainable forestry. We need to be responsible around that, but using paper is better. Styrofoam is one of the things that almost never gets recycled. It is technically recyclable, and I, I, I suspect that uh, uh, um, 
you know, it will be argued that there is uh, a chemicals that can break down styrofoam reformer, which is true. Uh, though it doesn't really happen in practice at any scale, uh, most of the styrofoam gets contaminated by food and it doesn't get recycled. And also it's made from polystyrene, which is actually it's like a toxic chemical to begin with. So we should really be, we shouldn't be using styrofoam. Okay, David, David, what do you say to that? Yeah, of course, it's going to mean we're going to have to cut down more trees. And the life cycle assessment shows that that isn't a net benefit for the environment. And, uh, I mean, in terms of styrofoam, there are a whole new slew of, of PHA product classes that are now almost entirely biodegradable. So the market seems to be addressing and solving some of the problems in terms of styrofoam specifically. But the reason why this question is so important, I'll give an anecdotal, a quick anecdotal evidence. So I try to support our local restaurants as much as I can. We heard during the break, the, the commercial, about 10,000 restaurants going under. I ordered delivery because where I live, we couldn't dine in. When I get delivery from some of these restaurants, it comes in a cloth bag as opposed to a uh, plastic bag. I'll never reuse that cloth bag enough times for it to be advantageous. And now I have about 13 or 14 of them because we try and order once a week. And so what happens to those bags? They get thrown into the garbage, uh, into the landfill eventually, as opposed to actually focusing on having the cheaper, more environmentally advantageous option and then actually having a serious conversation about ensuring it doesn't end up in landfills and in the environment. I think that's really where the conversation is is maybe what, what's missing in the, the policy talk uh, federally and locally. Okay, let's go to Sandra on the line in Nanaimo. Hi, Sandra. Hi, thanks Hi. for taking my call. Sure. Um, I just wanted to bring up a point um, that nobody's really said is we need to stop at the initial consumption stage. If we didn't consume so much because of wants instead of needs, I think that's it's just, We've got to start thinking about what we're consuming. Um, do I really need yeah. this product? Do I really want that product or do I need it? Um, I work for a big box retailer and it, you, your hair would curl if you saw the amount of garbage that comes in. We get a truckload of product in and it's all wrapped in plastic and sometimes it's triple plastic and then you've got all the cardboard boxes. Like it, The garbage alone in one delivery would take a few bins and that's every single day okay okay interesting 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 thoughts on that keith well i i would agree i mean we need to reduce the amount of plastic that we use i mean i think people know those the three r's reduce reuse and recycle and they're always said in that order because that's the order of importance it's most important that we reduce the amount of, yeah. of plastic and, and things that we use and then we want to we want to reuse these products too right if we have a reusable shopping bag that is that is better. You do need to reuse it a certain number of times uh, because it's often made of, of thicker material. But a recycled plastic shopping bag is, is actually probably one of the better environmental choices. Okay. Okay. Uh, well, and then, I, and then we recycle. Recycle is the third of the three R's. Okay. I know humans are going to continue to be human beings, though. I mean, you tell people stop buying stuff. I mean, I don't know how much of an effect that's going to have. But David, I know you want to jump in. Go ahead. Yeah, and and I think we have to remember that there are legitimate reasons why there's been a consumer shift to plastic over the years. So it was described that upward tick in plastic consumption. It's not just because we're all evil, greedy consumers who like plastic. It's because there are some added benefits to using plastic alternatives like glass. So you use the example of baby food. It's 33% less emissions to have baby food transported in plastic containers than it is glass. Multiply that by yeah. everything else that we have delivered to us in our homes, 
and it becomes quite clear that there is actually some environmental benefit to having that pivot to plastic. It isn't all negative. And I think that plastic gets, it gets demonized and it's, it's good, good politics, right? The perception is, oh, we have this problem, so we're going to have a ban. Um, but the thing is, is that okay. the ban really doesn't get to the root of the issue at all. Okay, gentlemen, we're out of time. I want to thank you for yours, those, and thank you for a really good discussion. So I appreciate both of you being here today. David Clement is with the Consumer Choice Center. Keith Brooks is with the Environmental Defense Organization. And thank you to both of them for being here. Thanks a lot for all your calls on the open line, too.